0: and uh, more importantly, welcome to our After Hours block. I'm your host, Elwood Jones, and joining me, of course, is our very own final girl, Miss Kim Lowe.
1: (laughs) Hello, hello. Uh,
0: Tonight we are going to be looking at Cabin in the Woods from 2012, directed by Drew Goddard and co-written with Joss Whedon. A film which gives a unique spin on the traditional horror tropes as a group of five friends spend a weekend at a secluded cabin in the woods, only to soon find that everything is not as it seems, as unaware that, that every movie is being watched by a vast network of puppeteers. Uh, so, Kim, I mean, this was a film we obviously talked about when when we were doing the production for our venture season and it was a film that i was i was really into and i think you were kind of like mixed on it i believe
1: i don't know i feel like i feel like every time i watch cabin in the woods this is like the third watch i had to prep for this one i kind of like it a little bit more <laughs> so yeah. we're heading towards a much more positive i feel like the first time i watched it i really i maybe i missed a lot of the detail and then i feel like i oh, i forgot a lot of the detail and then I'm starting to see a lot more of it now.
0: Okay. That's interesting so, Um Well, the film itself, I mean, it was written, as we mentioned already, by Drew Goddard and Joss Wilson, who previously worked together on the likes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel, two series which in turn had reworked many aspects of horror cinema, and... They wrote the screenplay in three days, describing it as an attempt to revitalise the slasher film genre and as a critical satire on torture porn. So this is a a film, as we said already, much like Scream, it sort of looks at the many sort of familiar tropes of the genre and gives it all a very unique spin. And in many ways a very Whedon-esque spin, as here horror meets with real world banality as we're not just focusing on this group of teens who are going off to the woods and falling foul to whatever's lurking in the woods, but we're also looking at the puppeteers, who are the ones pulling the strings and making all the things which happen in the cabin happen. Uh, In particular, we're following two engineers, uh, Stitson and Hadley, who are basically the ones who control a a lot of what's happening in the cabin. And we open just very... With just them having a very banal sort of conversation, um, in particular, the, a conversation about how Hadley's wife has uh, baby-proofed their house, and the fact that he can no longer get into his fridge anymore, um, while at the, the same time we've got this background chatter of what's happening at, with different centres around the world as they gear up to complete uh this year's ritual which will in turn uh help save the world but in what cost so the actual sort of setup for this one kim i mean how do you find this sort of setup i mean obviously it's it's a two-fold story i mean obviously we've got the teens in the woods which is our sort of traditional horror story and then we've got the behind the scenes Story, which for myself is kind of the more interesting story at play here. I always find that the stuff happening with the laboratory and these uh, engineers to be a lot more interesting than what's actually happening in the woods.
1: Well, I wouldn't say that, like, I would say that the definitely that's the twist that is that makes Cabin in the Woods stand out from your traditional horror movie, but at the same time, they both go hand in hand. Everything that goes on in the HQ, I guess. Kind of affects what goes on in the cabin, and there's this level of, of also that they actually the the teens in the cabin has kind of the has a say in pretty much their choices will decide how eventually they'll meet their death, right? And yeah. that's the that's the kind of more fun part of it because in the end, you watch them as their, their, I mean, in this whole cellar scene that I'm guessing we'll talk about later, it really gives that different feeling that, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a bit, I don't know, it's it's kind of, it gives a bit of mystery because in the whole time, you know about, they talk about rituals and then they talk about... Um, The different headquarters and the updates on the different scenarios and how they're all having issues and then But you never really know what this is all about you hint things here and there throughout and I think that's really I Think this is really What really stands out in cabin in the woods? It's not really maybe the acting or the pieces, but it's more how the whole story is written and just the creativity behind the story that they're using and with that folding in, all of these, um, I guess, more familiar scenes. I think one of the most familiar scene would probably be when they, when the teens get to the cabin, and you see that the camera kind. It feels a lot like you're watching Evil Dead. Yeah. The whole cabin in the woods, and then the mm. camera goes down onto the ground, taking like that ground angle, just like in Evil Dead. And I really like that it it, it it kind of folds in that it brings in like you said the the usual tropes of or something like that of of horror movies that we're used to, but then it gives them their own twists in this event. Where I don't know, I guess I guess in some ways you start wondering whether a lot of behind every horror movie and every creature is, is it really like someone's someone could be just in their headquarters maneuvering some kind of crazy crap right
0: exactly i mean this is the this is the great thing about about the film i mean anyone we've seen numerous times you know teens go into the woods and bad things happening i mean you mentioned already i mean it uses that same sort of there's the familiarity of the cabin when we see it that you as you mentioned already i mean we instantly think of like evil dead and we start thinking of like friday the 13th like just these, these surroundings are so familiar to us. Um, you know, teens deta- taken away from society, they're free of the uh, the strains of everyday life, so they they go all crazy and can drink beer and engage in premarital knupplings and whatnot, and. What we see here is that the fact that when we're like watching these films and we question, like, why are you making these stupid decisions? And with Cabin in the Woods, it's essentially like you make stupid decisions because the puppeteers want you to make stupid decisions. Like, were they and it's these little tricks that they put in, it's sort of like, oh, we're going to pump pheromones in to the cabin so that they become really horny, or we're going to pump this gas in so they just make really stupid decisions. Um, And then you mentioned already that whole basement sequence where. They essentially choose their own fate, and we and that seems to so pepper with so many great little layers. The fact that you look at all the different little different trinkets that are in the, the basement and how each of them are all linked to the the potential monsters that can be unleashed on the cabin.
1: Yeah, and and I think that that's really important because when you go to the cellar, you you look at all these trinkets and you might not think about it. Say in your first watch, you might not think about it right away. And you'll brush a lot of it away as you're looking at it. but when you go back to obviously in in a later much later scene near kind of like the big finale when they f- when you know the the teens meet this headquarter area and then they end up just realizing what they're a part of, you start seeing these different monsters show up and these different creatures that are in their own I guess glass cases or something yeah. And it's this incredible moment where you you kind of think back to the different objects that each of them picked up, and if they were one step faster than than what they what they eventually ended up choosing to do, what what other way would they have met their death? Right.
0: It suddenly just opens up like this whole this whole like a uh, smorgasbord of a gruesomeness. That could have potentially before these characters, and it's kind of funny when you're watching the sequence. You kind of like willing them to go towards different options. That you know, it's sort of like you're like, oh, don't do, don't pick up the book. You know, play yeah. with the puzzle orb or blow in the con- the conch shell because I want to see that monster uh, rather than the ones the you know the redneck torture zombie family that we do get, which are really just sort of like a a sampler of what's to to come and. I kind of, like, appreciate the fact that while the film could have just, like, teased out and just shown us the glass case se- sequence when we get into the into the underground of of the organisation and just sort of, like, left it of that, that we don't just get that. We get a full payoff and we get to... We essentially get everything. We get to see all the toys that are in the toy box at uh, least in this wonderfully bloody finale. Um, but... I mean, just to go back to like Hadley and Stinson. I mean, the the inspiration for these characters really came from uh, Goddard, who grew up in Los Alamos in New Mexico, and he would see people like you know Hadley and Stinson going around their usual everyday mundane lives and doing water cooler talk, and at the same time they're working on these weapons of mass destruction. And he thought, well, you know, it would be the same for these people. You know, we're essentially holding the fate of the world in our hands. We're having to carry out this. This is ritual, um uh, but at the same time, you know they're everyday people they they've become so used to the routine that it's all very sort of passe to them now the fact that they fight they have now instilled all these sort of distractions for themselves such as the fact that the staff now bet on which monster's going to be unleashed in that wonderful sequence where we got the board which has got all the monsters on it and it's like oh which one's going to appear <laughs> and who's going to win the uh, sort of sweepstake here but even when we're not looking at the what the what strings have been pulled here there's lots of really fun fake fake scares such as when we look at um the scene where jules is being dared to make out with the mountain wolf head and we're so sure in our heads that something bad's gonna happen
1: so it's not is, just that's the thing is there's so many objects in here and you don't know right from the start there's there's a lot of you're not really certain what the end goal is the whole time they're kind of you know you're hinting towards a lot of the the purpose of the these this ritual and what's going on and and all that stuff, and it all unfolds in the final scene when when we meet when we meet the president, which is played by a cameo role by Sigourney <laughs> Weaver. Um,
0: because of course, why not?
1: <laughs> yeah, and and it is you know like when Jules approaches that whole wolf thing, and then she brings in that big bad wolf. It's it's one of <laughs> it's just so great because it. I would assume that at one point. The wolf would have come into play if they were finding that object in that room, and it would have triggered the 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 big bad wolf, obviously that we got to see. So it yeah, it, I it, mean, it's, it's interesting because there there's so much yeah, you, know, you don't know there, there's so many different things that are going on, and a lot of things are are in play. And we get a hint of what they're going into like right from the beginning as they're entering through that tunnel we have that, you know, the e- they, they zoom into the eagle that hits a force field type of thing. Yeah. And and right then, you already know that they're heading straight into a trap. And everything is set up, every single trope that we know is a setup that's carefully planned, even from the moment that they left their house to decide to go to the cabin. It was every single little detail was planned by these engineers.
0: I think this is, this is something I really love about the film, is the fact that they do, right from the start, we know what's going on. It's not like it's this big secret. We know that these guys are controlling what's happening in the cabin. And we're constantly flashing back and forth between the two, so we see what's happening in the cabin, and we see who, how they're controlling it.
1: And it's and really nice conversations. Because, Yeah, and it's really nice because they, they have this really nice cutting point, especially when they're using the dialogue and their scenario to cut between the two and have this really nice crossover between what's going on in the in in pretty much I don't know what do you call it the office the headquarters the lab I don't know yeah <laughs> and then the, the facility <laughs> and what's going on in the cabin and and I think that that's so smart because obviously the most obvious one is when they're like uh, uh was let let let's let's get the party whatever going or something like that I forgot I'm not cool. I don't, I don't remember what the line was. Um, so, <laughs> and then they were saying the same thing in both scenarios, which, which was pretty nice. And then at the same time, they have a few of those moments that really cut really well into each other.
0: Yeah, definitely so. I mean, I love the, the harboring bringer, who is basically just the creepy guy who has to provide the warning at the gas station. Oh. And we've um, <laughs> got the scene where Hadley just leaves him on hold. So the guys that are giving this little rant, and he's just on hold, and he gets really pissed at him. I thought <laughs> that just gets me every time. <laughs> but it, but yeah, these little steps that uh, they take, and you think, oh well, we know what's going on, and it's only when we get to the end that they still they pull out. They still manage to pull out this amazing twist. It's sort of like, well, what we assume that they're just like. The whole thing is just that they're the ones who control everything, but it's the pe- reason why they're controlling everything. What the greater purpose is that um, they managed to hide right into the end. And I still think it's. It gives us this um, ending where you sort of like. The the journey has been so enjoyable and the world building is so great in this film that you kind of want there to be a sequel, yet at the same time, they break the film in a way that it can't be a sequel. Um, even though people were still asking when the film was shown. Initially, they asked uh, just weird and um, you' so sort of like, oh, would you do a sequence? he's like, did you not see how the film ended?? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, so... I mean I think, I think it's really nice. I think one of the, the best parts, I think is, is where in the end we have this whole um, this whole description. I think the big twist is the whole description of why everything goes down the way it is. Everything is, is played that way to appease to what they call the ancient ones and 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 it and it plays a lot on say even the group that they've chosen to the characteristics of each of the roles that the teens have which is obviously your typical your typical five people that that we usually see as a group in teen movies and teen slashers
0: Yes, I mean they they obviously play into the usual sort of tropes that we we see in uh, the yeah. film. So you you got you know the jock, the slut, the brainy one, the the fool as they put it, um, and obviously the virginal final girl. Um, yeah, so. right.
1: And and it goes all the way right down to you know like the sequence that they die, which is very similar in most slasher films, and and it all goes down to to the purpose of why the sequence is chosen that way.
0: I, yeah, it's a great way to sort of tie the two. I mean, obviously, we throughout history, obviously there's there's numerous documentation of sacrifices and people being made. So, of course, this idea that these sacrifices have always continued um, and the fact that the process has just become more, more streamlined, more modernised as it's gone on. The fact that we still have these sort of ancient rites, but they've just obviously adapted to the times and... This idea that uh, we've always been familiar with them, but, you know, we've never known their true sort of purpose, and this is what the organization controls. Um, I also love the fact as well, the fact that we obviously follow the American wing of the organization, but we see through the monitors there's, there's four other organizations around the world, including Japan, who, who's um, sort of tropes fall into more traditional sort of Asian horror sort of trope. so we have like the scary long-haired ghost girl and um weird weird rituals that uh, that end up turning their ghost into a frog mm-hmm. um which just made me me laugh as well I just but the whole idea of the organization it really feels like an expansion of um the initiative which we saw in Buffy season 4 who were like a government group who were like um tackling the threat of monsters and vampires and things uh, within, within the real world. And when we look at the organization in this film, it feels very much like an expansion of that. But here they're all about, you know, control, doing control releases of the monsters rather than just capturing monsters. Even though we do obviously see, like, on the board, there's, like, groups for, you know, Wranglers and security and zoologists, so it goes a lot deeper than just people pulling levers and unleashing rings in the world. There's like a whole departments dedicated to, you know, control and capture and maintaining this the infrastructure of uh, of this group. Which I, it's these smaller details that I think other directors may not have bothered to include, and I think this is just very Whedon when we look at the worlds he's created you know things like dollhouse and angel and buffy yeah. that they have these sort of small details these are all very sort of elements we've come to expect from you know the worlds that we creates. not create um the fact they're so sort of grounded in the everyday yet at the same time have this fantastical edge to them
1: <laughs> i was just thinking that I was just thinking how different of a movie this is that we we did in our season one after hours of uh, a jo- Josh Whedon written film in our in your eyes compared to this one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, again, in your eyes, I mean, that's that was like, oh, how do we do a romance with the they, they don't see each other? They just see what the other person sees.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, like. Weeden is is very is, is really really talented. I mean, he he definitely has an eye for creating these these really great stories, and I and I really love the fact. I mean, obviously, with In Your Eyes is the exception, but a lot of the movies that are similar to his, he brings in a very similar cast. And I mean, in this one, obviously, we have familiar faces like um, uh, Fran Franz Kranz as uh, Marty, and then. Who, who plays pretty much the fool, I guess. <laughs> mm. And then you have the, the scientist kind of role, or I think she's the chem lab or something. I don't know. Uh, and, and Amy yeah. Acker is in this. And I really love Amy Acker, especially when she was in Dollhouse, and both of them were in Dollhouse, I believe. So it was, yeah. And, and um, I mean, I, I really love those roles a lot. And, and seeing them here is... I think when I when I first watched this movie, it was it was really the the cast that kind of had a nice. I guess I kind of liked the cast. I mean, I remembered a few of the characters. Um, I mean, the guy who plays Holden was in was in Grey's Anatomy. Uh, I think starting out Grey's Anatomy or something, and that was pretty good. And then obviously you have Chris Hemsworth uh, before his. I think it's. It's right before his Avengers fame.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. Basically, I mean, this film it was they they made it and they basically shelved it, and it was only when obviously four came out and was making megabucks. It was all like, oh, what other hell's worth movies so we got lying around? So they sort of dusted it off and and wheeled it out. So yeah, which um, you know, I think is uh was a, a smart move, and it's hard to think the fact that they just. You know, they had this film just sitting around. They thought that it would not have a market because it's such a fiercely original take on the horror film. And it, it's like when you saw sort of Scream for the first time, and it sort of like felt like this breath of fresh air. Because the problem with horror is it often gets caught up in in whatever's popular, and it just runs it into the ground. So when you have someone give like a fresh take on 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 the horror genre, it's uh, always kind of exciting. and I think. Not since screaming I've been so excited, like, watching a horror movie and just, like, seeing familiar tropes just, like, being reworked in such a clever way.
1: I think that that's the thing. Like, to to bring in these, to to replay these things and make it feel like everything happens for a reason. It's It's not because, you know, these are tropes to us because we're so desensitized by horror, or if you watched all these Hollywood movies, they really play on these things all the time. But this takes a different angle into it. Everything, every little detail that you see is set up on purpose. And it, it makes you rethink that the, the horror genre and the horror world and just the genre of, of slashers... And and I think that that's really, you know, I, I think that the, a lot of it goes down to to obviously the director has a good eye, but at the same time, it's you know, that he also, you know, Whedon, we, I think, brings a lot into this picture.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly, I, I think you can obviously tell that obviously with, with um, Goddard and Whedon, they've obviously worked together yeah. numerous times before. And so they obviously have that working relationship. And it's hard not to see this as a Whedon picture. Because there's so many of so much of his like his his DNA all over this thing, yeah. Because it's it feels so familiar. It feels like you're looking at something within like the Buffy or the Angel verse. Um, and uh, again, it's the fact that both of them worked on both Buffy and Angel. It it only sort of keeps it further ingrained within that that universe, and it's. When you look as well as the, the cast that we brought in, I mean, you obviously mentioned already uh, Bradley Whitford and, and Chris Elmsworth. You also got Richard Jenkins, who's yeah. like... Uh, same as He's like J.J. J. Simmons. Whenever I see him on screen, I just know it's always going to be good.
1: Yeah, I mean, Richard Jenkins is, is really, really great. And, I mean, he's, he's, he's also one of those actors where he's in so many things in these, like, supporting roles that really adds a lot to the movie because he's such a he's such a great character like he really knows how he really can handle all kinds of roles
0: oh yeah he's i think we've we've, when it comes to Richard jenkins i think the more laid back you can have him be the better he is because he just as i said just just how he handles dialogue is just so so good like like when you look at this dialogue it's all pretty basic stuff but the way that he handles it and that sort of like laid back sort of droll. It just really sort of adds so much and he has so the two these two two puppeteers just really have so much great working chemistry together. The fact that they've obviously done this so many times, so this working repertoire and you see the outsiders of the group like their um, like their um security. Um guy that the oh, I trying to remember his name right
1: no, uh Brian White.
0: Yeah, who's basically you know, he's so by the book and he just like completely it's like he's almost like a to just how laid back that they are, even though he knows that uh, that they're perfectly capable of getting getting this job done, but they're just like too laid back for him. He's too like wound tight. He's like, oh we're gonna do everything by the book and everything, so but with these two, they're just all sort of like, they're joking and, and and aggravating other staff members. And and even, as I said, they even hold the monster pole, which when you, it's great when you look at that board and you compare it to the final scenes of the film and you're sort of, like, crossing off. It's all sort of like, oh, there's the giant. There's the giant snake. It's like there's Faunus, the Lord of Pain, the doll people. Um, the only person you don't actually see in the Meltdown is Kevin. Who's on the uh, board? And apparently, he's a normal-looking guy who does very, very bad things, according to Goddard, So, it's <laughs> uh, apparently had it all set to uh to shoot it, shoot his bits, but it just never happened. So, but um... yeah, apparently, there's over hundred, there's uh, around 137 monsters in the film. Not that I've like sat there and counted them right or anything. <laughs> I'm sure
1: someone would I'm sure someone if they haven't yet someone will
0: (laughs) yeah um and uh yeah obviously just to bring back obviously the evil dead there you've obviously got the deadites in there you've also got the angry molesting tree Makes yeah. an appearance. Um, Left 4 Dead 2 was actually going to do a tie-in with the film and do, like, uh, levels in the game, which would uh, mirror the end sequence we see here, but um, due to MGM going bankrupt, it never happened, but Valve, who made the game, still let them use um, characters from the game in the in the final sequence, so that was really nice of them. When it comes to was he just, you know, the kids themselves, I mean, we obviously talked a lot about the organisation, but The kids themselves as a group, do you find them a little disposable or did you actually like them? Because, I mean, they do initially make an effort to try and make them, um, you know, likeable to be around, even though I don't understand why uh, Kristen Conley is hanging around in her underwear
1: well she's at home
0: so I know she's hanging around at home but she's got people coming around and she's still like just hanging around in like her vest top and her underwear and I know there's people listening to this going shut up Elwood (laughs) (laughs) there's nothing wrong with that scene it's just I'd sit there watching it like this this evening going why is she hanging around with like in front of her window as well so she's in uh, in just her underwear and it's all like um I was like that made no sense and it's all like
1: no, she it, it it's like she was getting changed, and then she got she got sidetracked.
0: <laughs> but she has like her friends come in, and it's sort of like, oh yeah, don't worry, it's just Dana in her underwear. <laughs> so, <laughs> and everyone's really blasé about this, um, which just made no sense. It's sort of like like when when Marty turns up with his his epically huge bong. It's like oh yeah which that's, which, that's which
1: comes into play later on in the best way, I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um but yeah, I think outside of Dana and Marty, the others are just so disposable. Like I didn't give it g didn't care about Holden. Um I think Chris Chris Helmsworth's care I kind of bought more into just because him and uh Anna Hutchinson's jewels have got more of a sort of presence there, but you know, um, Hoden, I mean, I don't he's think not, I He's really not cared. meant
1: to, in any horror movie, the scholar role isn't supposed to be meant <laughs> to be, you know, like, very... It's not It's not meant to be a standout role, I don't think.
0: I love it as well the fact that when they start falling into their roles, because obviously because of the drugs being put in there, so, you know, with uh Jules, he's supposed to be the the bimbo or the slut and that so the fact that they've been putting chemicals into her hair dye to make her dumber which I think was just really funny but when you look at Holden and he's being turned into the scholar that he actually dons glasses yeah Um, where Kurt just becomes like more of a jock and just more of a aggro personality which is a fun contrast at least they bother to show him as having like intelligence at the start when he's like recommending books to Dana um, about uh, Soviet economics, so which I'm sure is going to be a real riveting read.
1: <laughs> it's real. It's really nice because we watch these the the development of the these five teens, and as the movie goes along from their starting point where they're still themselves pretty much, you eventually go into to where like you said holden ends up wearing glasses which i was a bit surprised because i was like what he was wearing glasses before why <laughs> type of thing and then and then you start having this conversation about they start having this conversation i think it was marty who brings it up about how they've changed how kurt and um kurt and jules character has really changed from who they normally are And we haven't known, you know, we, we, at this point, we haven't seen them enough in their own territory to really be able to see whether they've changed exactly that much. But, but that what, if you really look at the details from, from the beginning till, you know, where they get to have that comment, you really start seeing the differences Of, you know, right when, like, when they're having that road trip coming in, and then, and then when you, you're in that scene where Kurt turns into this more, as he calls it, more of an alpha male role, which he usually isn't, and, and Jules is acting a lot more, I just, it's just not herself, I guess. Yeah. But then at the same time, you start thinking, is that the, I guess one of the best parts is, is when you see when you see Marty, who's doubting this entire time, and then all of a sudden, there's that whispering voice in the background that comes out, and then he doesn't really hear what they're saying, but somehow it's kind of hypnotized him to to, to just, like, do whatever they say.
0: Yeah, it's... I mean, I have still no idea what the deal with the two-way mirror is supposed to be.
1: I think, I think the purpose of the mirror was really to... I don't know if it was an eventually come into play if if, say the the they had chosen differently maybe it would have come into play but I think in this in this purpose at least it plays as the escape route for for them to you know to be able to to move between the rooms I don't know if it's meant to have a lot more a deeper role than that but I feel like it would have but I'm just not sure what it would be.
0: Yeah, it just, um, it's just like, why are we we in this cavern and we've got this, 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 uh, two way mirror? Um, but it just really made no sense as to why it was there, so. I just I wonder just...
1: if they were. I just wonder if it was meant for them to discover that. Okay. Because maybe. Because, you know, the, it feels like if they didn't discover it and would would it have changed the ending? I But then I mean in the end, who comes out of this is, is the fact, the, the changing factor that we thought Marty had died, right? And then he doesn't.
0: As I said, it's just the one thing, everything else kind of makes sense in it and I kind of think that it's explained and and uh, and whatnot but that, just that random ass mirror the only thing I can see is just so that they could uh, put some mutual perving in between Dana and Holden.
1: But... It isn't, right? Because, I guess so, but then because it, it, because in the end, it was like they had to change the scenario because they changed rooms. Which is a little bit like they didn't expect the characters to do that.
0: Well, yeah, I know that. When you put that creepy ass tapestry up of uh, Lambs to the Slaughter, it's like, what do you think? Nobody's going to take that down. <laughs> so, uh but. This, I think this is something that we we don't obviously don't have cabins in woods over here in the UK. I think I'm guessing you guys have in Canada probably do because you know got you more of a rural.
1: Yeah, we got a wilderness going. mentality, a lot of empty space.
0: So I don't know. It's something I always thought would be kind of cool to do: go to a lake house or something. But um, we don't really have that over here. So <laughs> at the same time, it's at the same time you watch these movies and you think, oh, that'd be kind of creepy as well. So.
1: I think it's really the horror movie thing, right? Like, sometimes you think about it and it's like, it's like, we we always, like, me and my husband, we always talk about if we were to retire at one point when we have enough money, we'd move to, like, away from, like, the big city civilization. Like, not even, like, suburban. You go into, like, rural area to live.
0: Yeah. Yeah
1: but then you think about all the horror movies you watch about houses in the middle of nowhere. And you're like, even if something happens, there's no help. There's nothing. <laughs> and then you just kind of feel like, I don't know, maybe I've watched too many horror movies. It's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's affecting my life choices.
0: <laughs> when you see the, obviously the end of this film is a very sort of <laughs> final note that it, it ends on. Um, I don't know about yourself but part of me kind of really wanted the uh, wants to still wants to see more whether we're looking like a a different group or we're doing like um a, a different sort of because it'd be hard to use the same the same team that we see in this film um but i kind of want to see what was happening happened how like how things have run like in a different uh, one of the other branches of the organization. Like, I want to see how the J- Japan branch or yeah. the German branch run. And part, I still want to sort of hold out with the hope that one day we may we may see that. But at the same time, it's sort of like hard when you look at the foreign branches because it means it's got to be shot in a, in a non-English um, language, which obviously provides its own sort of issues, not only in terms of distribution, but also in terms of production. So it, um is there a particular country you would like to see the organization for because obviously we see like Madrid and we see uh, Germany and we see obviously see Japan featured quite heavily here was there anyone in particular you thought sort of well oh, I would love like to have seen more of that
1: I think it'd definitely be Japan I mean Japan has all these horror icons I, it's one of the it's one of those type of horror movies that I usually really does get me yeah um, I mean, in in reality if you if you compare a lot of say horror of Japan to whatever to to even the states, you have a lot of I feel like there are certain tropes, but Asia has is is more based on elements of belief and that's why it would have been even nice to see the same scenario how it failed happen like on an alternate timeline because if you were to use this current one, there's nothing that you can talk further about unless you go back to the origins of how this started, how yes. Ancient Ones became the thing or, or something like that, right? Because right now, it's pretty final where we're at. The only thing that would have been nice to see a sequel of it is what is the end game Like, if the Ancient Ones destroyed the world, you know, mm. as, as what they predicted, if you don't live through with the ritual... What else happens? Like, what are these ancient ones? What do they do? Like, how are they destroying the world? Like, a bunch of... Maybe it'll be like a survival horror sort of deal, right? <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's a lot of room to... It's not really... Uh, I feel like if you ever want to play on horror movies, it's really that... How far of an angle you want to take it. It's never an end-all sort of deal. There's still a lot of room for this to go, but... You wouldn't use back the same characters because, obviously, there's nothing to talk about unless no. you stretch it and you're like, oh, well, you know, Dana and Marty somehow make it out of there alive, you know? But <laughs> even if
0: they do, it's sort like, well, what, what do we do with them? I mean, they're not god killers. Um... And it's it's a weird sort of sort of end end game to have. Um kind of reminds me of the end game of the Resident Evil movies where it's sort of like, Oh, the whole plan was to eliminate all life on Earth so we can remold it in our in our own image and it's sort of like <laughs> what you've been left with is a pretty cruddy world, but at the time it's been like nuked and it's infested with zombies and god knows what else, it's not a particularly great end game that you're running with here, guys.
1: Yeah, because so. that's the thing is, if you look at the ancient ones, right? The, the what they're saying is, if you don't give them the ritual, they'll they'll pretty much pulverize the world. But what does pulverizing the world do for them? Like, um. I mean, in that sense, would you not think about the fact that maybe it's just really a, a threat? So it gets these people to keep create the creating these scenarios that that sacrifice and, and, you know, offer a, offer a blood offerings to, to them to keep them quiet. But, I mean, in the end, would there be some other way in any sort of apocalypse? You look at, like, what we always talk about, these apocalypse movies. Like, uh, I mean, you can look at even, like, something like The 100 or something like that. Uh, TV series, The 100. It's like the end of the world. There's a nuclear thing. Everyone goes into space to live or something. And then when they come back... They realize that the land is still occupied by people. There's still people who has lived through this. Yeah. So, you know, even when someone des- destroys the world, there's always some survivors. And that's another angle that you could have taken take in the story. It would have been a different way. It would be something like how Cloverfield went, right? Cloverfield had its found footage segment where they were mm. running away from these things that are attacking the world. But then when you go to 10 Cloverfield Lane, it's something different. And that's definitely something that, you know, Cabin in the Woods, if we were to see a sequel, it would have been interesting to see the different angles of the story.
0: You see, that's the thing, because I think if we try to continue with it, we're just going to sort of drift away in and start focusing on things that I don't particularly want to. And my only focus here is that I just want to see more of the organisation. That's yeah. the sole draw for myself here. They're the most enjoyable parts of the film, not what's happening with the teens. And I think... By the time we remove all the the dead wood from the team group, we narrow it down to our key two. That that as I said, that's all I I want from from that group. I just need someone to balance out everything else that's that's happening here. Because at this the, at this point, when they go down into like the depths of the organisation facility, um, and we have that whole sort of like meltdown sequence where all the monsters are unleashed, it's all like we need them there because we need someone to follow because everyone else is just basically monster fodder at that point. So, um, but yeah, it's sort of like, it's like, how do we get more of the organization? But at the same time we can't. So it's, it's, um, I think it's one of those things that's just going to be, it just forever more. It's going to be like, well, it's sort of like, if only you've gone a different way.
1: But, you know, yeah. I think that there's a lot of respect here in terms of, How this movie chooses to end. Because a lot of horror movies always give you that... That... Maybe... uh, Continuation. This cliffhanger. This sort of thing. And I hate that. I hate that so much in horror movies. That it always needs to keep this open-ended... Just open-ended ending type of thing. Where... Keep it open-ended, pretty much. Where you have to... Where it gives that possibility of something... Something that's going to happen next. A possibility of a sequel. But with Cabin in the Woods, they just shut it down. They're like, okay, this is one movie. How this ends is how it ends. I'm not giving any other, you know, opening to continue going. And that's a really brave move because you're taking this movie and maybe they didn't think it was going to be great or whatever. But it became a hit and then now you have this I don't know, but then, I mean, you don't know, maybe ten years down the road, someone's going to want to do a sequel to it, because that's what happens in our world right now.
0: I know what you mean. It's There's a couple of films where they've ended on that sort of cliffhanger. I mean, Deep Rising ends on that cliffhanger, and um, the remake of The Blob ends on that sort of uh, it's not so much a cliffhanger, is it? It's more just the, you know, where we could go from here, and they never obviously got sequels, and it just always frustrated the hell out of me, so yeah. Maybe i um, maybe as I say maybe it is for the best that we descend it on such a final note. So and it's kind of interesting. I mean this is a film where the good, the good doesn't win. We saw this is the thing we good essentially wins but we're punished for them winning. This is the one time we needed the bad guys to win.
1: Well, I think the deal is that they wanted to fight the they wanted to fight against the organization because they didn't feel like what they were doing was right when you're sacrificing everybody to to meet an ends of the world ending, and then you see Dana in that moment where, but it's the world, you know, it's the end of the world sort of deal. <laughs> what choice do I have, right?
0: Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, <laughs> but no, I as I said, I still, I still really enjoy this film. It's, it's still fascinating to me the way it's sort of set up the way it plays out and all the sort of moves it makes I think it's just such a wonderfully creative piece of horror cinema and one that um, it, it plays such loving homage to the to the genre but at the same time just feeling so unquestionably fresh so it's uh, it's definitely a unique one and one I think that we just sort of one that is still just fun just to, to puzzle over uh, even now, just to look at all the the inner workings of it and f- try and figure out how it all uh, comes together, it's still a lot of fun. So, Yeah,
1: I agree.
0: Should we get into a watching?
1: Yes. Okay,
0: sure. so... How well, would you
1: kick it off for us this time?
0: <laughs> okay. So, um, for myself, if uh, you obviously like Cabin in the Woods, so I've got a couple of uh, ones that I'm going to, to go with. And I was really sort of looking at the films which revived that sort of interest in horror so obviously the first one off the shelf off the bat would be scream i think scream and cabin in the woods both operate on a similar plane of what they brought to horror cinema um, and certainly giving things that sort of fresh feel again which is certainly most needed um, the other one i would want to go with is Cabin Fever the Eli Roth original version not the remake. Um, as much as Eli Roth has done his best to annoy the hell out of all horror fans and just basically throw his uh, career down the pan by playing the celebrity game rather than focusing on being uh, this amazing horror director he he apparently was originally set out to be and certainly when we look at Cabin Fever it's got all this sort of freshness uh as a horror film that was certainly missing from the genre at the time, and it's just a shame that it sort of went rapidly downhill from there, between his sort of personality and then his questionable filmmaking talents. So, but um, I think Cabin Fever, it pairs very nicely with this film, and certainly brings a fun spin on sort of the viral sort of thriller. And... The only other one I can think of, and this is sort of more of a stretch, and that would be to check out Wes Anderson's New Nightmare, which basically is a meta take on uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, as um, the lines between reality and the film world are blended. as. Uh, it becomes apparent that uh, Freddy Krueger may be getting out of the films and into the real world. Um, this is a really sort of brave take on the mythology by Wes Craven. I thought that it uh, really tried to do something new with a very sort of uh, well-worn format rather than just trying to do more of the same. And while it's probably not the most perfect uh, film, film in the series, it's sort of interesting, the take it takes. And I think... Since its release, it's much like you know Halloween three. It's been re-critiqued again, and I think people have a higher opinion now of it than they had when it was originally released. So those would be my three for you. But what about yourself, Kim?
1: Uh, well, obviously kicking off, I would go right right away. I mean, I mentioned it, and that would be Evil Dead, which plays on the cabin in the woods genre. Whether you watch the nineteen eighty one or you watch the remake of twenty thirteen, um, which is
0: surprisingly good.
1: Yeah, both of them was... are, are, are really good choices. I mean, I'm not as I actually like the 2013 one a little bit more than 1981.
0: Okay, I can the original see
1: that. was a bit slow, uh, but <laughs> but I mean, uh, I mean, Evil Dead is right on with this. There's a lot of cues that pair up really well, and you can see where the original kind of the original source of of the cabin in the woods really started, and then you can go into something like you can really see. I guess the inspiration and a lot of the comparisons and a lot of parallels between the two movies. Um, I mean the next one I go I went with was uh Ready or Not, which is something of a similar thing where the story is really similar in the sense that it's it's a group of people that need to act on a ritual. Um to prevent uh, eventually, pretty much imminent death. <laughs> so, <Okay. laughs> so it's pretty much you either do this, you have no choice, you have to do it. It's it unless it's or or else, um, death will happen. Death will happen either way. <laughs> it just depends mm-hmm. how how it will happen to and to who. And I mean, ready or not is a fantastic movie. I mean, uh, it, right now Samara Weaving is really great in these sort of roles. She's really. She's really gets into her character as the girl on the run and this tough girl who, who gets caught in in on her wedding night in this, in this game that she ends up picking a really bad choice, the worst card in the deck, which means it's a life and de- it's a battle for life and death for her, and uh, things get really out of hand and there is a really good parallel in that sense of the of kind of being played by, by the people around you kind of deal, um, and kind of fighting back to it. So, I mean, Ready or Not is a really great choice in that sense. Um, I don't really have another one, um, but I was sitting around and thinking that if you were talking about people being brought into a kind of organized life and death sort of situation, um, The Maze Runner is a really good one. Maze Runner yeah. is a dystopian story and uh, it's set in the same thing where these boys end up mysteriously in in this area and then they're surrounded by a maze that they need to escape in order to escape this Yeah, you know, es- to, to 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 escape this area where and this deadly maze that can kill them. Uh, so yeah, those are my those are my choices.
0: It's also a real similar setup as well. This idea that you've got people in a situation, and you've got puppet masters pulling the strings and controlling what happens within the maze. I think that's a really good, good one to uh, pair it up with. I've yet to really watch the other two in the, in the series, but I really, I enjoyed the first one certainly.
1: Well, the books are pretty good, but I mean, uh, I've read, I've read pretty much all the books, um, but I haven't fi- I haven't watched a second or third movie though. Um, I've only watched the first one, which was. A surprisingly good adaptation. So I was really—I don't know what. Well, I don't know what's taking me so long to catch up to the sequels.
0: So that obviously brings us to the end of another edition of our After Hours portion of Movies and Tea. Well, thank you everyone for listening. As always, um, you can obviously check out our full archive of episodes or our previous seasons to date over at Movies and Tea Podcast You can follow us on Facebook and twitter and we're also on instagram as well and why not uh, hit the like and subscribe button uh you we'll happen to listen to us and maybe leave us a review as it all helps raise the profile of the show um but until next time thank you as always to my co-host kim and thank you to you for listening and uh, we'll be back again soon with another edition of movies and tea after hours until then good night